Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. This is the Inner Voice Show, part of the Evolving Mind. Sorry, I'm I'm excited to be with you. Um, I'm Dr. Fujian Zain. I'm a psychotherapist, the author, and the originator of the Awareness Integration. And hello, Sean, our director in the studio. This is a show about what matters most in our lives, our minds, thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. Today in this show, I will share the tip of the week about some endings being hard, but they are the gateway to a new beginning. I also will share with you how to handle your anxiety attacks. And there's a research we're going to talk about from Washington State University about stress, anxiety, and depression that are associated with less and lower quality of sleep. And I am excited to bring you Dr. Stephen Gardner. He is an internist at Massachusetts General Hospital Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and past medical director of the Massachusetts Special Olympics. Today, we will talk about his book, Jabberwocky Lessons of Love from a Boy Who Never Spoke. This is his experience with his son, Graham, and so much more. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel and podcast and connect with me through Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, whichever you like, and all are with Dr. Fujian Zain. I love to hear from you and um, be able to answer your questions and hear your comments. But first, here's the tip of the week. Here's the tip of the week. What is it about facing endings that jolts us into a re-evaluation of the past and the future? I've been talking to clients and colleagues about facing endings this week. Facing ending their career, moving on to retirement, facing getting a divorce and ending their commitment to their marriage, facing ending being a stay-at-home mom due to all children moving to college, facing closing a business that has not been fruitful, and so on. It doesn't matter if the ending of a phase of life is due to a natural positive growth or it is due to a disruptive negative consequence. There's still a common process. Some resist the process and go through it with anxiety and agitation, while some go through it as an observation what was and what is to become. As I spoke with someone who is facing retirement and shared reevaluating vision of his future, the last 10 to 20 active years of his life, completing his responsibilities and going around the world, he no longer needed to consider anyone else. He saw it as his right to move on and do what he wants to do, whether his wife joined him or not. I spoke with a young woman who's getting a divorce. She shared the vision of herself as a powerful woman, wanted to be a great mother, and reevaluated her fantasy about marriage and her criteria for decision-making prior to her first marriage. Talking to a man who wanted to close his business after several years as he reevaluated his myths about having a business 
and what he'll learn that he can use in his life. And the woman who, although her wish for her children was to be successful and launch from home, is coming through, is facing her identity as a mother ending while she has no idea who she is and who she will be. Sadness, fear, anxiety, and excitement are all being fully expressed and experienced. So the realization that all phases will end and new ones, new beginnings will be there may allow us to move through the process with some finesse, allowing the grief process to emerge and to be complete for any stage of life that is ending is a necessary step. A positive vision of what the future may hold will also call us forward toward actualizing our vision. People who try to skip the grief process, distract or numb themselves through the process won't get away from it. Just prolong it. Grieving might be acknowledging and going through the sadness, valuing what it was and saying goodbye with grace. Cherishing the value and the goodness that was brought into our life, the strength and the skill that was learned that can be utilized for the future completing and having the willingness to let go. Most times, the process of letting go and grieving can be side by side with the process of moving forward toward the vision of the next phase of life. Asking yourself, what is next for me? What is my passion? What is it that I have not done and always wanted to do? What is left for me to learn? What inspires me? Who do I intend to be? So create a realistic vision of yourself. Collage about it and put it where you can constantly see it. Change is inevitable. Growth is inescapable. So let go with grace and move forward with excitement and finesse. For more observational and methods to envision the future, go to my book, Life Reset, The Awareness Integration Path to the Life You Want. And you can find that in Amazon. I promise you the exercises there will support you to go through all that I just talked about. some of you have been asking questions for me so thank you uh one of the questions that i got this past week is um about someone writing uh, that they do have anxiety attacks and almost panic attacks um once or twice per year and after that they go into kind of a deep depression so anxiety attacks come in because we um have experiences of anxiety and about something, whether it's an unknown concept, whether we're anxious about the future, maybe we see things about our future that are only negative. We create a negative kind of a scenario in a film, let's say, that we direct in the future and it's all bad. Some people are in a space that they've been hiding something withholding something, lying about something, they've done something that they think <clears throat> it's bad or wrong and they're afraid that they're gonna be caught. Um, so there are very different reasons of why we would get anxiety. Anxiety is usually about 
either a negative unknown in the future or um, an unknown concept in the future, whether it's just the plain unknown or we put a slant of what if the worst thing that is can can happen and then and we put it and we kind of like um, contribute it, uh, uh, have an assumption about it in the future, something that hasn't really happened right now. When we have that throughout the day, our body goes through a reaction. And after a while, it just becomes hypervigilant toward um, anything that is stressful and it's unknown. Usually as this attacks get higher and higher, you people also have experiences of um, shortened breath. They think they can't really breathe. They might have uh, something in their throat, like a lump in their throat. And then it turns out, oh my God, what's wrong with me? I might die. And that's usually when it turns into like a panic attack. And then afterward, if it turns out to be that they're going into a depressive state, most of the time, whatever's going on in their life, they feel powerless against it, helpless against it, and hopeless against it. And therefore, from there, they go into a level of depression um, and a sadness about what to do. Because if you're hopeless and helpless, you just sit in that space until the next level of um, anxiety attacks show up. And sometimes we feel traumatized by the anxiety attack and we're waiting because it happened in the past. We are waiting and having an anticipation about the next time that an anxiety happens. And, and therefore now we have a heightened level of being afraid of our own emotions and what's gonna happen to our body. So what can we do? First of all, it's looking at a couple of different ways. One, in order for our body to calm down, we have to do things to calm it down. So um, we have to, instead of it getting activated, we have to do the types of breathing, meditation and exercises for it to actually know that it's safe and it's releasing and it's calming down. So we begin with um, exhaling. You can count your exhales. Don't worry about the inhale. As long as you exhale, I promise you, the inhale would happen uh, automatically. So sometimes when you tell people to do deep breathing, they go, <gasps> they go like, and you know, they hyperventilate afterward or they get dizzy. So you don't need to actually even worry about your inhale. Just start exhaling long, start counting as much as you can with these in exhales. After you exhale, you can even start it with a sound like Ooh. you can even sing a tune, sing something that you like and uh, start uh, caressing your own body and letting yourself know with the mantra, it's safe, it's okay, all is well, I'm safe, I'm alive, it's going to be okay. And start touching your own body as if you're caressing and letting yourself know with those messages that everything is going to be okay. Now start meditating. Some people, when they are anxious, they can't just meditate. They need a visualization or they need a guided visualization and a guided type of a meditation with some type of a music. YouTube is full of them. You can go to them. There are a lot of great apps. You can go and let yourself be worked up with whatever the guided meditation is that is to your suiting and it actually calms you down. Begin imagining and visualizing, for, especially for people who are visual people. Imagine 
that you are in the best space of nature and safe that you like. Some people like water, some people like mountains, some people like greenery and a forest, whichever it is, start imagining, fill up your vision with that, fill up your ears with this beautiful music that you hear from the YouTube. Some of the YouTube ones have also nature scenes in them and start caressing your body again with the touch. So you're getting all of the senses and bring maybe put lavender or chamomile or something where it also calms you down with the you know nose and olfactory sounds. And, um, and then just exhale and exhale deeper and deeper. And sometimes when you are very anxious and you can't calm down first, what you do first is to walk, run around, uh, jump as if you're on a trampoline, play as if you have a rope, do any of the active things so that you get that intensity out of your body and then you calm yourself down. So this is more for the physical sense of calming down your either anxiety attack or panic attack. Then tell yourself, what is it that I'm thinking or triggered it and allow yourself to calm that down with finding and doing reality check. Am I safe now? Am I okay now? What is it? Has it happened or not? Is it just the fear? Is it something that is not just the fear that they can be actually planned out and that would happen? What is it that I can do right now? What is it that I can do tomorrow? What is it that I can plan? So these are the things that you can tell yourself to kind of calm down from the anxiety. And if there's a sadness, or is this something that you're still grieving? There's something you're not facing. Is there something you need to let go? Um, is there, are you really hopeless and powerless? Is there anything you can do right now which brings you out? What type of resources you have which can support you and know that you're not powerless and helpless against all that's happening? Yes. So you can actually go through this first handling your body, then handling your mind. If you need support, call me, call any therapist or coach that is out there that have experience in anxieties and, and um, depression, and they can support you with giving you tools in how to handle the things that are right there in the surface and uh, to work behind the surface also. What are some of the thought process that are showing up from your subconscious? Um, what are some of the fears that you have that are you haven't actually handled? What are some of the things that are you withholding because you're afraid or you feel shame and you don't know how to talk about them? And maybe if we could bring them in an amazing and calming and accepting in a loving space that you can actually begin loving yourself and calming yourself down and you don't have to go through all of that. Trust me, anxiety and depressions are treatable. They're manageable. So call, you know, let, let me support you or wherever in the world you are, let somebody support you. Medical management and medication at times can help, but in all studies has shown just medicine doesn't help alone. Psychotherapy, coaching, being, you know, um, kind of becoming aware of yourself and learning the tools as how you actually manage it. So take care of yourself and get good help. So many people likely lost sleep over COVID-19. A study of twins 
led by Washington State University researchers, which was also published in Frontiers in Neuroscience, found that stress, anxiety, and depression during the first weeks of the pandemic were associated with less and lower quality of sleep. In a survey of more than 900 twins taken shortly after COVID-19 lockdown measures began, about half of the respondents reported no change in their sleep patterns, but around a third, 32.9% reported decreased sleep. Another 29.8% reported sleeping more. In the analysis, the researchers found that any change in sleep was connected to self-reported mental health issues, though it was more strongly associated with decreased sleep. The results show that deviation from your typical sleep behavior may be associated with depression, anxiety, and stress. Scientists emphasize that this showed a connection, not a cause, but the study supports previous research that had that has found a two-way relationship between disrupted sleep patterns and poor mental health. In other words, when people don't sleep well, they're more likely to feel stress, anxiety, and depression. And when they're dealing with the same problems, they are more likely to sleep less and sometimes more than the typical six to nine hours a night. The study analyzes surveys and responses collected between March 26th and April 5th, 2020 from participants um, in the Washington State Twin Registries. Since, since then, the same group has answered three other waves of survey questions. Researchers are particularly interested in studying twins so they can investigate whether associations mediated by genetic factors, shared environment, or both. The pandemic also offers an opportunity for a natural experiment to see how the stressful situations affect sleep amount and quality among individuals in the community. So this part is really interesting that even if your cell phone says you consistently sleep eight hours every day, you may feel that you slept less or slept poorly. And that may be the link to stressful or anxious feeling. It may not matter whether or not the actual numbers changed. It's how you feel that is associated with your mental health. So the Washington University researchers have also conducted the twin studies on COVID-19 lockdown effects of alcohol use, of pandemic, uh, stress, and exercise. These have all been initial studies taken on the early stages of the pandemic and associated social distancing measures. Scientists are all still analyzing those results, and um, but they are steering, they are starting to see a common theme a pattern that is consistent across three studies that people who reported change in physical exercise, alcohol use or sleep are more stressed, anxious or depressed than those who said that they had no changes. And that makes a lot of sense from the other side too, because the signs of depression and anxiety is either more sleep or less sleep or um, more, uh, e you know, eating more or eating less. So there's definitely a change that happens from a regular concept. And you can also imagine if somebody has stress and anxiety that it will affect their sleep. So that's the research kind of shows us from the, another uh, angle in what we have known about uh, the stress, anxiety, and depression, and how these are related, and the consumption of alcohol and drugs have really sky, skyrocketed at the time of pandemic. 
what can we do with these research is also to when we see that these patterns are showing up to attempt to regulate it from a behavioral stance so begin creating structures for ourselves in our life creating times allowed and during the week and during the day that we do exercises the same times we start we can start eating exactly at the same time the same portions we can uh, create the habit of going to sleep at the same time so if we could shift some things on a behavioral level we can also go back and change some of the concepts of the anxiety and the depression plus going back and looking at what is it that is causing the anxiety and depression as we have talked before in this program uh, from a mental perspective. So I just wanted to share with you also how you can go about this on a structural level that if you change the structure as you see it lastly to bring it back into uh, a daily habit and put the, put the structures and follow it. And if you need a friend, Get a friend and a coach and that uh, can follow with you uh, you can get on um, and exercise together you can create times that you can eat together so it will create those times of system for you to regulate um, your life and as you regulate your life you'll see that at least the stress comes down the anxiety comes down and then you can also look at it from an emotional and a cognitive space and see what's behind it and uh, that you can also release or change and shift the paradigms or change something in your life where we could actually calm down the anxiety and depression. Welcome back, everyone. Um, this is Dr. Fushan Zain, and I am excited to have Dr. Stephen Gartner with me. He's an internist at Massachusetts General Hospital, assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and past medical director of Massachusetts Special Olympics. He's the past winner of the Harvard Medical School Human in Humanism in Medicine Award. Stephen is a prominent photographer whose images focus on the resilience of people facing adversity and the compassion of caregivers. His work has been exhibited in Boston and Martha's Vineyard, where he is a volunteer physician at Camp Jabberwocky, the location and inspiration for many of his stories, and especially his latest book, Jabberwocky Lessons of Love from a Boy Who Never Spoke. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Fujian. My pleasure. Um, you got inspired. Um, and I can sense uh, as I was going through the book that you learned and got inspired by your son. Your son came to your world and every day he surprised you with so many ways of being. Um, yeah. That was, that was amazing. So please, um, please share about that. And then how come Jabberwock, what, how come that, became the name of your book and became the name of so many of the experiences. Okay. Um, thanks for having me on the show, first of all. Um, so our son Graham was born with a condition called cerebral palsy. And it turns out that cerebral palsy has sort of a wide range of severity. So some people have a really mild case and, and they can talk and they can walk with a limp maybe. But other people, including our son, have more severe uh, disabilities. 
And in his case, uh, something injured his brain during gestation with his mom. Um, we never found out what it was. Um, so he was unable to speak, unable to walk, unable to really fend for himself in conventional ways, like with eating. Um, so it was a bit of a shock, obviously, for first-time parents, um, learning that you're going to have a child with a significant disability. But as we went along with him, um, we began to think about abilities and disabilities somewhat differently. Uh, and in his case, there was sort of this radiance inside of him that really has no other name except love uh, that just made it incredibly enjoyable and rewarding to be around him, uh, whatever we were doing. And in the beginning, we thought we probably wouldn't be able to do some of the conventional things that parents do with children, like riding bicycles and things like that. But as time went on, we realized that we actually could do almost anything we set our minds to. Um, we had some role models in the Boston area, like uh, the father and son, Rick and Dick Hoyt, who were in the Boston Marathon every year for 32 years, with the, the dad pushing his son, who had cerebral palsy. Um, when Graham was about 10, we discovered that there was a special camp on the island of Martha's Vineyard called Camp Jabberwocky, which was one of the very first sleepover camps for people with serious disabilities in the United States, having started way back in the 1950s. So Graham was accepted there as a camper, and I sort of rode his coattails in there as one of the camp doctors and got to hang out there. And it was a life-changing experience, uh, becoming part of this extraordinary, eclectic, noisy, silly sometimes community of people with and without disabilities who would share part of their summer together tease one another, uh, laugh together, uh, have each other's back, encourage one another to dream, but in the end, uh, form a family that we all were proud to belong to. And it, it gave all of us a very, very special sense of belonging and experiencing this thing that we, we now call Jabberwocky love. Um. As I was reading your book, it brought me um, to, um, and I'm, I'm a crier, so don't worry if I have, uh, have uh, emotion. Um, I, I, am, I, am, I am too. I, <laughs> I, I, I cry at a rock fight, so try to beat that, but go ahead. I came, um, you know, I came from Iran when I was about 12, 12 and a half, and I went to a boarding school in Arizona. And uh, I was like, didn't know English and just came into this boarding school with a lot of uh, obviously like affluent children who had a little bit of chip on their shoulders and all of that. So one of the girls who was in my dormitory, um, she had cerebral palsy. And I remember when, you know, when you brought this conversation of Jabberwocky love. And I remember the first person that I ever received love from was her. We became best friends um, through, the, through the time that we were at school. And um, she had a lot of difficulty sometimes walking or uh, you know, her, her hands and her feet had uh, kind of uh, had very difficulty in doing stuff. And I remember even that um, after like a couple of months where I was able to speak English and be a part of you know, the whole of school, 
a lot of people will come in and other girls uh, will come in and say, you know, come into our group and click, but you have to let, you have to not be friends with her. And it was like, hmm, let me choose here. <laughs> Why would I not want to be friends with someone who gives me so much love and, and this way yeah. of, you know, um, like the, re the real love, you know, being human with not, not caring about anything else and just being the two of us. So I was reading your book and really uh, brought back a lot of those years for me. Sushant, um, I can contrast your story with a, a story that's in the book about a school. Uh, so when Graham was about, I guess, eight or nine or 10 years old, he, he was placed in an, in an inclusion program in a middle school. So the idea was that a kid with a disability would be included in regular classroom activities and not just spend the whole day in a different space. His homeroom teacher came up with an idea that was quite fantastic. She called it the designated driver. And the idea was that she would assign one of the other kids, the able-bodied kids, each day to push Graham in his wheelchair to recess to assemblies, to all the school activities. And what turned out to happen was that becoming the designated driver was a coveted role for fourth graders. So those youngsters at that age already knew that there was no reason to be afraid of someone who was different from them. In fact, they embraced the idea that he was different from them um, and became his inner circle of advocates and pals for the rest of his life. Um, so far from an experience of cruelty, you know, or anything negative, we had just this overwhelmingly positive experience in middle, middle school, thanks to his peers and thanks to this remarkable teacher of his. Yes. So share a little bit about what you mean by the term Jabberwocky love. So Jabberwocky love to me means um, a sense of belonging. Um, there was a, a writer, uh, Marina Keegan, who used the term the opposite of loneliness. Mm -hmm. She was writing an essay and she was trying to figure out a word that would describe the feeling of being among like-minded people who care deeply about one another, who challenge one another, who encourage one another to dream and try things that are difficult, maybe argue a little bit disagree about things, but in the end, care very deeply about one another and become together a community where everyone is equal. And in that community, whatever a person can do is welcomed. And whatever they can do, they're considered to be contributing equally to the community and to the, to the family. So I think we all, we all want that feeling of being part of something. We all want that sense of the opposite of loneliness um, we want to be in this environment where um, we're essentially all, all one family. You wrote this beautiful lullaby for him that is in your book. I'm yours and you're mine. And we are part of one design. Like branches on a tree, waves out on the sea. And, um, and it's... And you say, no, sung in two parts, harmony, and all I really want to do is share this life with you. Great. Until we meet again. 
So how was it to be part of his life? How did, what did he teach you as you were moving forward and Cynthia your way? So I think being around Graham uh, simply taught us to have open hearts and open minds when we meet people, whoever they are, and to really embrace uh, differences that, that we have rather than the opposite that's typically happening in our culture right now. Where we tend to be polarizing and um, suspicious of one another in some cases. Um, so just the notion that um, we're all in this together um, we don't leave anybody on the side of the road. We bring everyone along for the, the journey, for the experience of, of life. Uh, and we all have something to offer. We all have something to receive. Uh, one of my patients told me that even the poorest person in the world has something to offer and the richest has something to receive. So that's also, I think, a, a part of the Jabberwocky philosophy. It seems like there's uh, different priorities in our life and different times in our life, we choose those different priorities. And sometimes when um, you know, you're stripped away from some um, abilities, let's say, or some opportunities, it is very, um, it's interesting how we cherish the opportunities and that we have and how we extend those opportunities in that way. Um, so, and I've, I've seen a lot of this, the matter of when you, when all you have is life or death, when you, all you have is, um, you know, a particular way of being in your body. If, um, if all you have at this point is what is in front of you, then how amazing you'll make that to be. Yeah. I don't know if that made any sense. I think it made sense. So with Graham, I think we discovered just being together was joyful. Uh, we didn't have to be riding bicycles. In the end, it turned out we could ride bicycles. We found ways to do that. Uh, and we found ways to ski even on the snow. Um, but underneath that was the sense that even if we were at home, uh, listening to music, sitting in front of a fire in the wintertime, um, just being together was enough. And condensing everything down, it just meant that we were uh, experiencing the love of, of a, ch a child and his parents. His, his mom was equally remarkable and equally strong and amazing as a mom and responsible for a lot, a lot of things, good things that happened to him. Uh, so that love uh, was what it really came down to, uh, learning to just be together and enjoy that, that, the presence of this moment being together. In your book, you say God was the first one to cry. Can you share a bit about that? Yeah. Uh, when Graham was 10, he got very sick and had to be in the ICU at Children's Hospital. And so we had the same sort of existential questions that any parents would have in that situation. Like, why, why is this happening to our child? Uh, one of the hospital chaplains gave us a book to read from uh, a rabbi named Harold Kushner. And the book was called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in that story, he tries to sort out whether God can be both good and omnipotent. Because if God were omnipotent, why would God allow 
terrible things to happen to children or anyone else for that matter. So I think Rabbi Kushner concluded that God is good, but not omnipotent. I was having this discussion in my office one day with a patient who was studying uh, theology. And I hit him with that question about, can God be good and omnipotent? We talked about it for a while. Uh, but about three days later, I got a letter at home from him. And it simply said, dear Dr. Gardner, I want you to know that I feel that when Graham passed away, God was the first one to cry. So I, I agree with Rabbi Kushner. I think the goodness of God is present in the love that's around us. Um, and the people who rally when we're facing adversity. Uh, but God does not want terrible things to happen to anybody. You decided to share uh, your experience and Graham's experience in this book. You're a physician, uh, you work with illnesses all day, and you also had your own personal experience um, with your son. What was the reason you decided that you wanted to share this? What were the points that you wanted the world to know? And how do you think the world needed this book now? So, um... When Graham passed away, which was about 10 years ago, uh, his mom and I were, were somewhat surprised when we started receiving a lot of condolence cards. Specifically, I think it, it came out to be 750 condolence cards. Um, and we realized that there was something about this boy who never spoke that had, was reaching people beyond his family, even beyond our, our friends and neighbors. Um, and that his, his message of just goodness and love and carpe diem living in the moment uh, seemed to be inspiring other people, not just friends and family. So even when we went to the memorial service uh, at a church in Marblehead, Massachusetts, uh, that, that church was full and there were people outside sort of in a, in a line uh, hoping to get in. So it became evident there was, there was something about this boy that almost ethereal uh, that touched people that he ran into. So the question was maybe, maybe share that story with a wider audience and see if it touches other strangers, people that are not necessarily our friends and family. And particularly, as I said a few minutes ago, at a, at a moment in time when the world seems to be filled with a lot of dissonance and, you know, uh, we're not on the same page a lot, a lot of the time. So certainly maybe that his message would be timely right now. And we saw, especially with the pandemic, um, a lot changed for the whole world this past year. Uh, many people didn't no longer had the, um, the connection of face-to-face -face being with other people. Being, um, they became isolated. They became lonely. Uh, they right. became afraid and couldn't even trust being around people who they really loved because they were afraid that they would get an illness or, um, you know, uh, it, it, even the illness became in some level um, a point of feud, whether it became a political feud or just um, a normal life feud about why are you wearing a mask or not? Or why are you, you know, not coming to see me or not? And 
it just became very, uh, and I'm just talking about United States. I'm not even talking about the rest of the world and how it, you know, no. it impacted them. So if we could take some of the lessons uh, from what you know, Graham went through and you also experienced with him, and as you uh, put it out, especially since um, you probably also saw a lot being in the hospitals and working in the hospitals, what could you uh, share with us bringing these two worlds together, the, the world of Jabberwocky love with what was going on in the pandemic and for everyone? That's a wonderful question. First of all, Jabberwocky would be the polar opposite of social distancing. So there's not a second at Camp Jabberwocky where people aren't hugging other people. Um, as I researched uh, that chapter for my book, I realized that um, we actually have nerve endings in our, in our fingers and elsewhere that tell us that we're, we're experiencing what they call emotional touch. So a mother's caress or uh, cradling a, a baby um, is experienced as a unique form of emotion. And when we, when we experience that, um, we actually change hormonally, at least momentarily. So our stress hormones go down and the feel-good hormones go up, like endorphins and oxytocin is another one. Um, so there's actually sort of a scientific reason why laughing and being silly and being in close contact with other people makes us feel good. And as you just pointed out, the pandemic took that opportunity away from, from a lot of us. So we're, we're very excited to be going back to camp in one week for the first time in two years, because we missed last summer for the very first time. And it's a, it's a date on the calendar that we, we mark, uh, and we look at that date for the rest of the year uh, as the date when we, we get to go to this magical place and experiencing that opposite of loneliness, that Jabberwocky love, that sort of opposite of social distancing. So part of what you're sharing is how to be together with touch and being in each other's presence. Um, there's a way of being in each other's presence, which I think that it changes, it's an assumption, and you, you tell me um, if it's accurate or not. I think when it shows up in the world of disability, um, there's a stigma with disability, there is a fear of judgment, around it, there's so many things around it, that it's almost like if I break through this, um, this cloud, like this dark cloud that is around it, and then I go inside, inside is filled with love. Yeah. When I go beyond the, um, the fear of this stigma or the fear of judgment, is that accurate a bit? Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay. If you and I take the same conversation and see, like, if we take what's going on in the world, a lot of it is just judgment around, you know, whatever we think. We have, we each have an opinion, and we think we're right. And obviously, if I'm right, the other person must be wrong. And uh, we go into this space of judgment, and yeah. it's like, how can we penetrate the space and go inside the space? which then there can be an utter level of love and acceptance for each other as beings, as human beings, regardless of 
what all of our abilities are. And this is one of the things that I experienced um, reading your book and, and sensing from you that that's what you experienced um, at the Jabberwocky camp, which are people who are together. Some have different types of disabilities, some have different types of illnesses, some don't. And uh, they're together in, in order to be together. It, the, the, it, the, in order to is only to be together. Yes. Versus proving something or, um, you know, anything else. So you can see the judgment goes away and the being together becomes the priority. That's really well said. So at Jabberwocky, the, the difference between a camper and a counselor is blurred uh, or even disappears. The, the idea that there are some people who are giving and other people who need help, that blurs and that almost disappears. And it becomes instead one family in, in which everybody's thought of as an equal and they contribute whatever they can. Um, when we leave the island after camp, we always ask that question, uh, why can't the so-called real world be more like Camp Jabberwocky? And uh, that's, a tough, that's a tough question. It's beyond my level of expertise to answer a question like that. But I know that those of us who've been touched by Camp Jabberwocky, both the campers and all the volunteers, will leave the island at the end of the summer uh, with a nugget of that dream inside of us. The, the dream that people can live together as a family, can celebrate their differences, can have open hearts and minds. And as we leave the island, we have the wherewithal to take that nugget of feeling with us back home, wherever, wherever we came from, and hopefully not let the real world sort of beat it out of us in the weeks and months that follow. Um, so that's sort of, I guess you could say, the ripple effect of a magical place. Uh, the butterfly flapping its wings. You can have a relatively small institution or relatively small entity that has far-reaching effects if people can keep those things in their hearts. I remember, for example, going to India to uh, an ashram at one point, and this place was not necessarily a religious, like attached to any type of a religious um, foundation. Um, although they, the, uh, I mean, it was for Brahma Kumaris, but it was more like a conversation was about just love and acceptance and uh, higher wisdom. And it was like 10,000 people uh, there at one point. And mm -hmm. uh, what you got from them is people from all walks of life, all types of, you know, backgrounds who were there. Um, but they were there to interact with each other as human being. And a lot of the other pieces um, were not necessarily relevant uh, in, in the time that they were there. So obviously in real life, a lot of other stuff will become relevant because of our roles. Like we have a role, you have a role in the hospital as a physician. I have a role as a psychotherapist in you know, my practice and different places. So the, each role might, might create a construct, but I'm, uh, sensing more and more in what you had experienced in the camp and what you had experienced with Graham expressed to the rest of the world where they had 700 people, you know, sending um, a message of what brought Graham to them was um, concentrating on 
who he was and what he could offer in that moment with another human being without all the other kind of constructs of the roles. All the roles need to be there. But it seemed like that would be the, the light, that would be the essence. And, and then the conversation would be, how can we flourish that essence? When I first went to Jabberwocky, which was 25 years ago, uh, I had already been a doctor for a while. So I'd been surrounded by kind, kind-hearted nurses and doctors and therapists of all kinds for years. Uh, but when I arrived at Jabberwocky and looked around at what I saw among the volunteers who were counselors for the, for the campers, I was actually stunned, even though I'd been a witness to kindness and compassion throughout my adult life. But when I saw a 15-year-old girl from the island who seemed to be able to take care of a completely disabled adult 24 hours a day without any problem and with nothing but laughter and smiles, that really caused me to step back and take notice. And I began to think that people behave that way, uh, passionately, compassionately, because of what they've, what they've seen in their lives. So in this case, uh, this young, young woman had seen her older sister, three or four years older, as a full camp counselor, uh, and come over and hung around a camp for you know, a few days at a time and watched her, old, her older sister in action demonstrating that fantastic combination of smarts, compassion, and humor. And so naturally, the youngster wanted to be like her older sister. So in terms of the old argument of, of environment versus genetics, um, nature versus nurture, I came away concluding that what we see in other people, how we see other people behaving, really imprints itself on us, especially when we're younger. And we, we become, in a, in a way, we become what we see. Who did you change to be after? Uh, I mean, you were a physician before, and then you uh, went through your experience with Graham, and then went through the experience of seeing the Jabberwocky camp. Um, who, how did it change you in your profession as a physician? I would just say it made me a, a more humane physician. I hope I was to begin with, but I think it, it gave me um, the feeling that I, I needed to take a deep breath more often and slow down and really try to listen to people more carefully and understand where they were coming from um, and recognize that every single one of them was unique. Every single one of them deserved to be uh, seeking help from someone else. Um, sort of back to that idea that, that we're all in this together. So uh, wh whoever came in, it didn't matter to me too much whether they had insurance or not or what their background was. Uh, but I think from Graham, I just tried to take away the, the notion of treating every single person as respectfully as possible and with as close to an open heart and open mind as I, as I could. And uh, the message that you're having that we're all in this together, it really feels, you know, hits home, especially with the concept of pandemic around the world. This wasn't just yeah. something that happened to one of us or uh, a group of people. This is something that happened around the world for all of us. Yeah. How we behaved and how we, you know, interacted with each other or um, 
took responsibility for our own life and others really, really could set the set this, you know, path for all of us in a sense. Yeah, indeed. Um, I was just going to share um, one of my favorite expressions with you from Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I hope your listeners or viewers have all had a chance to see the movies about him. Um, but he said, uh, the only thing that really changes this world is when one person gets the idea that love can abound and be shared. And I think that described perfectly uh, Helen Lamb, the founder of Camp Jabberwocky. Although she might have added uh, an addendum to that, which, which she might have said something like, the second thing that really changes the world is laughter that can abound and be shared. Um, so yeah, so that, that ethos, that philosophy uh, is prevalent in a lot of places, but it sort of gets buried sometimes under you know, the day-to-day frantic nature of our lives. Very true. Um, in one minute or so, if there's anything that we haven't really touched upon and you really want our listeners and viewers to know about you, about Graham, or um, your message in, the, in your book. I think I'll just defer to uh, Winnie the Pooh. And I'll say that um, there was a story in which Piglet asked Pooh, how do you spell love? And Pooh says, Piglet, you don't spell love, you feel it. So I think, you know, Graham was somebody who allowed everybody that ran into him to feel the love that came out of him and hopefully to pass it, pass it along. Um, and we all, we all have that capacity within ourselves. Uh, we just have to try to keep it, keep it going even when it's tough sometimes. Absolutely. Yes. Everyone, Dr. Stephen Gardner, uh, the book is Jabberwocky Lessons of Love from a Boy Who Never Spoke. And you can find the book at jabberwockybook.com or Amazon and anywhere else that the books are there. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And um, I love the book and I hope, and I know it's not a hope. I know that anyone who uh, reads this book, the first thing that it does, it touches your heart and it touches your inner being. And this is what Graham had given you and everyone around. And thank you for sharing it with everyone else in the world. Fujan, thank you for having me on. It's my thank pleasure. You. Take good care of yourself. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing world for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye.